starting a brand new sermon series called Christ's Community and Culture. Christ, Community, and Culture. And uh, this delves into some of my most favorite topics because it goes into, I love to think about how I think. Why do I think about things the way that I do? Why does society think about things the way that it does? Why does the church relate or not relate well to current society and world conditions? And I don't know about you, but it's pretty obvious from my perspective that the church seems to have lost its position in society and in the world. Wouldn't you agree with that? It seems to have lost much of its influence, much of its uh, even practicality in many people's minds about why, why do we even need a church? Why does it exist? Why do we have these institutions? Why are they important? And people ask the question, why would I even want to be a member of a church? And uh, back in past generations, that never would have entered anybody's mind. You know that, right? Everybody was part of the church. The church, and in many countries still to this day, the church is the central hub for all community activity. If you go to some nations and some countries, uh, the only place that has power in the evening is the church. Their homes may be without power. Maybe they only have a light or two on. So everybody goes to the church just to be around and to be able to see and have the lights on. There are other nations in the world where the church is the only source of education that children will get. But in the United States specifically, in the Western culture and in Europe, we find that the church seems to have lost this central influence. And as Americans, we look back to that and people say, oh no, how can the church regain its influence? And, and some people think, you know, it's through politics. And if we read scripturally and we look at history, that's never a good idea when we're hoping politics and government can be the driving force behind religious influence. That never goes well. So that's not the way to do it. Maybe the way to understand it better and how the church can regain its influence is understanding why it lost its influence. And then once we realize why it lost its influence and why, where we are in our society and how people relate or don't relate to the church these days, maybe then we can consider how can the church be influential again? How can it really change lives and make disciples like it used to? And so this is what our series is going to be on. And today, part one, we are titled Presence. Presence, the ministry of presence. And before we dive in, let's bow our heads one more time and have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and mercy. And send us now your Holy Spirit so that we may learn from you, that you may teach us how we as Christians and we as a church can have an influence on society in a positive way and continue and, and regain that wonderful power from on high to make disciples of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, American history is complicated. You all know that, right? It's very, very complicated. And most of us have learned a very flowery, uh, a very flowery history of America. What we learned in our schools and what we learned in our textbooks is a very flowery picture. You know, those that want, win the wars get to write the history books. You know that, right? Does that make sense? Are you all with me today? You're just staring at me blankly. That makes me nervous. All right, you're all alive, good. Yeah, we, we have a very flowery idea. Here's a perfect example. I see a lot of Christians out there today and a lot of people out there today saying, what's happened to American politics? Why have we gotten to this place? Why is there so much division and why is there so much uh, uh, conflict in politics? Well, we say that because we don't know our own history. The history that we're taught is just simply that, you know, this, these two people ran against each other and this person won and this is what they did while they were a president. We, we have a very flowery history. 
But here's some truth about American history. Are you ready for this? Did you know that when the presidency was first established, that the runner-up in the election would automatically become the vice president? Didn't know that, did you? I bet you also didn't know that when John Adams was president, does anybody know who his vice president was? John Adams' vice president was Thomas Jefferson. Now, all we ever hear is about what a wonderful president Thomas Jefferson was. But did you know that while Thomas Jefferson was the acting vice president of the United States, he was heading up a large propaganda machine to put out anti-John Adams material to the country. As the vice president. Now, I, I only share this with you because I want you to see just how we have just accepted this wonderful idea of how greatly the United States has done things and organized itself and behaved throughout the years. We haven't learned these nuances and these things often in our history books. We always want to think of our country as being pure and perfect and right. And who wouldn't? We live here, right? But it's more complicated than that. Humans are involved. And whenever politics are involved, it's always messy and never a good thing. That's why God didn't even want to give a king over Israel. You know that, right? They were asking for a king. Give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. And the Lord was saying, I don't want to give you a king. Finally, the Lord submitted and gave them Saul. But because politics, because kingdoms and empires, it's complicated, it's messy, and politics, in fact, are a disgusting thing. And it's been that way since the beginning in American history. It's just we don't learn these things. And so what has happened with, with the church and its relationship to the society, you know, in past generations, since the rise of the colonies and the American Revolution, we had this idea of manifest destiny. Now, do you remember what manifest destiny is? The idea that the United States should spread from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast and maybe beyond. We were the greatest nation and the greatest people in the history of the world. And this, this is not Pastor Hall knocking our country at all. This is just saying, this is what happened in American history. From east to west, the American ideal, the republic, democracy, uh, Americans. And, and as many of you know, this is very common knowledge, is while we were accomplishing manifest destiny, we were also mistreating Native Americans quite a bit. It's complicated, isn't it? But for most Americans, uh, we had this idea of national pride and manifest destiny, especially in past generations. And in the past, there was a sense of respect and honor for government. Whoever was elected, that person was, was viewed as honorable, and uh, the, the government itself was seen as really a, a symbol of what was right and good in the world. Because Americans saw themselves as everything that was right and good in the world and the representative of good, and therefore they saw their government that way and their country that way. Are you with me? And this lasted, this ideology lasted all the way till, uh, you know, a certain time in Earth's history. And along with the ideology that that the government was right and pure and good, came the ideology that institutions were also inherently good. So the church and, and the institution of the church was always good in people's minds. It wasn't even to be questioned. In those days, if you were a pastor or a priest, you were the, the most respected person in town. Is this ringing a bell for anybody? You were the most respected person in town. 
The barber might even give you a free haircut once a week. You'd get discounts and things on your, your bills and, and charges in, in your, your, your daily life because you were part of the clergy and, and other very respected institutions. People loved it when the Sears and Roebuck catalog would come in the mail. And they represented the best quality stuff that money could buy, right? And American-made cars, and American-made this, and American-made that. It was this idea of national pride, a sense of, of good and right, and we're Americans, and we're together, and, and not necessarily was a bad thing, it was probably just, though, kind of a blind thing. Because anytime you have humans involved, it's complicated. Are you with me? It was a bit naive to think that way. And, but this ideology largely through all of society existed up until a certain time in world history. All the way through the 50s, it still continued, but something significant happened before the 50s in the world that started to crack away at this idea of trust the government, trust institutions, trust uh, the, the, the big companies and things like this. Can you, can you guess what happened in world history that started to make people just begin to question some of these things? Any ideas? Ah, I heard it. Who, who said that? World War II. Specifically what? What happened in World War II that would make people begin to question whether the government was doing the right thing? The atomic bomb. It was the atomic bomb. And it's not necessarily that people didn't think it was necessary. It's just that now photography had gotten to the point where, and, and the media had gotten to the point where, people began to see some of the images and the devastation that came from dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. They saw the little children ravaged by the destruction. They saw people's homes in rubble. They saw how horrible this vehicle of destruction was. And they started to say, man, I, I know that we needed to win this war because we had seen Pearl Harbor. We'd seen what the Nazis were doing. But then we saw what we did to innocent people. And people started going, oh. they, get, they started to get uncomfortable with it. And after World War II, even though you had, um, and, and again, some of you who are historians, you're going to go, wow, he's, he's painting in broad brushstrokes. And that's the only thing I can do. This is not a, a uh, history, college-level history class. This is just to illustrate why people's thinking began to change about government, institutions, and the church and society. It started in World War II with the dropping of the atomic bomb when our government brought such devastation on innocent people and our own members, our own people saw it. Our own citizens saw it for themselves. And their conscience began to, to, to creep up in them. But yet still, we needed to win that war, and there was that sense of national pride. And uh, we, we continued to have those things. But even amid World War II and amid some of these things, what else had been happening in society? What happened in the 20s and the 30s? We had the Great Depression. You had the Roaring Twenties. You had the Great Depression, and society started to change. You see, it's not just simply that people are willing sinners. It's not just people, not just to say people are, they, they have no interest in church. It's the psychology of the Western American mind that has put itself at odds with who the church is. And it's not entirely everybody's fault. That's why we're going through some of these details. You had the Roaring Twenties. You had the Great Depression. They, saw, they began to see corporate greed. 
they began to see some of the things that were beginning to happen. So the, the American ideology that the government is always right, that uh, institutions are always right and have our best interest in mind, and then you have the Great Depression, and you have the dropping of the atomic bomb, and people are beginning to go, is that really true? Can we really trust these institutions? Can we really trust our government to have our best interests and the best interests of the world in mind? Are we really that pure and, and that right all the time? People began to ask those questions. And, and after that time, because of media coverage, we began to see public infidelity of high-powered people. Can you name some? The Kennedys. Who else? What's that? Well, yeah. Public infidelity or, you know, just, just some greed and some, some sinful living amongst very powerful people. We saw the rise of the press and photography and then you fast forward to the late 50s and early 60s and mid-60s, and who's coming on the political scene? Nixon. And for the first time in American history, because of the influence of the media, I mean, in past generations with presidents and things, you got your news probably two weeks after it happened because they were writing it in the newspaper, and the only photography that you had was whatever the sketch artist could draw. You following me? Well, by the time you get to Nixon, now you have photography, you have journalism, you have big business journalism. And Nixon comes on the scene, and the American people see the fall of the highest position in the entire country. They hear admitted guilt from a president of the United States. And then other stories started coming out and they were beginning to question, do we really need such paranoia when it comes to communism? You remember some of the paranoia around communism? What did they start doing? What started happening in society because of a fear of communism? McCarthyism, that's right. You know that many Hollywood uh, actors and, and writers were totally blacklisted from society during that time? If there was an inkling of what they maybe started to even suspect of communism in any of your work, they would blacklist you. You couldn't get a job. If you had in college attended some sort of group or been part of some club that maybe had some communist ties, they would blacklist you. You could be arrested. You could be put on trial because of a, a, a hypersensitivity, even a paranoia toward communism. And a lot of people saw our involvement, and there's a fantastic a documentary about the Vietnam War on PBS. They did this a couple of years ago. But they really clearly highlight the fact that it was an intense paranoia about the influence of communism in the world that got us into Vietnam. And not to say that, you know, <laughs> you should feel bad if you're a vet of Vietnam here. That's not what we're saying at all. But what we are saying here is that people more and more as the decades went by began to see the fallen nature of politics, of government, of country, of institutions, of businesses, and of the church. They saw sexual immorality amongst te tele-evangelists and the embezzlement of money amongst famous preachers. So in the minds of Americans and in the minds of Western Europeans and the minds of developed nations, 
the institutions that they trusted for so long that they believed in, they felt betrayed by. You following me here? So then we had a generation of people rise up in the 60s and 70s who did not want to trust the institution, who began to question the validity and the authority of the church, who began to wonder whether it was worth it to fight for your country. And we started to have families now not attend church very much because the place of honor that the church held in the minds and hearts of people now didn't hold that place anymore. And now you fast forward to the year 2020, and we, as the church, look at people who don't attend and say, oh, well, you know, that's because they're concentrating, they're, th they're thinking about the wrong things. They're sinners. They have no interest in spiritual things. I'm here to tell you that is absolutely not true. You find some of the most spiritual people in your workplaces today. They're interested in spiritual things. It's just that they have learned as decades have gone by that the church should not hold a place of authority in their lives anymore. It's not as central and important as it should be. They, they, were, they learned this from their parents. And I got to tell you, the church was at fault for causing some of that thinking. Can, can we all agree to that? And so... Uh, a term came up in the late 70s, early 80s. How many of you have heard the term uh, postmodernism? Okay, you've heard the term postmodernism. But basically, if I had to, to boil it down, it became a, a, a prevailing ideology in society that there is no absolute truth. Since we can't trust what people are telling us, since we can't trust those in authority, since we can't trust institutions and, the, and what they're telling us, what we have to do is just live our own truth. Who do we trust? We can't trust the church. We can't trust big business. We can't trust our government. Who do we trust? I'll have to figure it out on my own. And how can you blame people? because of what was happening in our society. I have to trust myself. There's no absolute truth. What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and as long as we're friendly and nice and we all get along, we're all happy. That's postmodernism. The problem with it is it's failed at its foundation because it's saying the truth is there is no truth. Catch that? The truth is there is no truth. That makes absolutely no sense. But now we're at a point in society where people are rejecting that. Have you noticed it? That's why we are in, more than ever before, an era of activism. People want to stand up and point out wrong. People want to stand up and, and have a cause. In the postmodern era, people would not have done that. People say, oh, you know, as long as we're all happy and what's good for me, man, let's all just get together and be happy. But now people are rallying to a cause. You've seen this, right? If you haven't seen these causes, you haven't been paying any attention to anything. Are you following me? People are rallying to causes. People are pointing it out in the political world and the, the social world. They're over postmodernism. We are in post-postmodernism, but here's the problem. They're post, we, we've become post-modern vigilantes. What's a vigilante? Takes the law into their own hands. Batman is a vigilante. Batman is a vigilante. He, he goes out and he enforces what he believes to be true. You following me there? So Batman's a vigilante because... People have rejected any sense of absolute truth. They become vigilantes for the cause in which they see as right. That is extremely dangerous. Because that's saying there is no higher authority, there is no higher truth than what I see as right. 
and I am willing to say whatever I need to say and do whatever I need to do and politic in any way that I need to politic in order for my view of what's right to be made clear to everybody. You see that at all in our society? That's the, that's the culture that we're under. It's actually a bit like the book of Judges. You know, the, if you want to understand all this, the nastiness that's in the book of Judges, you read the very last verse. You know what the very last verse of the book of Judges says? Every man, there was no king in Israel, so every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We're living in the era of the book of Judges. You see this when even people who claim and, and you know they're posting things from the same cause on social media, when they don't agree on something, they start to attack each other. There's no loyalty even to any cause anymore. Everyone's only loyal to their own cause. So now we take this into the realm of the church. What if Seventh-day Adventists been telling the world for 200 years now, practically? Jesus is coming, but there's a phrase we like to use even more than that. We have the truth. Amen, but people out there are going, what does that mean? And why would I ever trust you to tell me what it is? What's true is what I believe. You see the juxtaposition? <laughs> An institution who hangs its hat on having the truth in a society that in the 70s, 80s, and even the early 90s said, there is no absolute truth. We have the truth. There is no absolute truth. You're seeing how there is a total disconnect there? Complete disconnect. But what did we start doing? Or what did we keep doing, I should say? What did we keep doing in the Christian church? Trying to reach out to people in the exact same way as we were back when they trusted the church. We didn't change anything because it worked really well back then. And people said, well, that's not traditional Adventism. That's not original Adventism. And I say, of course it isn't because we're not living in the late 1800s and early 1900s anymore. We're living in a time where people view truth and relate to truth in institutions completely differently than they did back then. And it's not because they don't have an interest in spiritual things. It's because they have been taught by the institutions that the institutions are not trustworthy. Can you blame them for saying, I want to go to a non-denominational church? Do you see the, the hook there? Non-denominationalism. Well, if, it, if I'm part of a non-denominational church, that means there is no, quote-unquote, institution lording over me. And so during the 80s, non-denominationalism really rose because we were in the time of postmodernism. I can go to this church and believe what I believe and worship with other people without having an institution lording over me. Are you with me? Here's the problem, though. There is no such thing as non-denominationalism. It's just the title. Because for every non-denominational church, if you go to their website, what do you find? What we believe right? And so you click on what we believe, and there's a list of beliefs, isn't there? Now, what are denominations founded on? Core doctrines. So every non-denominational church is actually its own denomination, if we're being real about it. It just is. 
and you, you will attend the non-denominational church that you most identify with. That's just, that's just the reality of things. But it was popular because people thought, well, there's no institution lording over me telling me what I have to believe. And you can see why it was. And then in the meantime, and as, as time went on, people related less to the church, and they got busier and more stressed. And there was more technology for them to enjoy. And movies became more explosive and colorful, and we have 4K high definition. And who wants to go to a place and listen to a guy shout for 45 minutes? It's boring. And if you haven't been taught the, the, the power and the need to be a part of church because your parents didn't go and they, they lost trust in the church, you can see why people don't relate well to the church anymore. Is this making good sense to you? And so what can we do about it? What do we do? Well, um, people think these days that we are more connected than we've ever been. What do I mean by connected? Somebody tell me. Electro electronically, virtually. You have more access to the people that you went to high school with. Some of them you're glad you connected with. Others, not so much. You know, Facebook was cool when it first came out because you could look up people and go, oh, wow, he gained 50 pounds. <laughs> you know? Oh, those kids are ugly. Wow. You know, that was fun. You reconnected with people. And now it's become this other thing. Arguing and posting all kinds of nonsense. That's what it's become. But, you know, and, and we have Zoom and FaceTime and all these things where we think we're connected. But did you know that people report being lonelier than ever? We have more access electronically to each other, but people have never been more lonely. Isn't that interesting? Because think about it. I mean, you're, you're relating to a phone or a computer. And uh, the, the love that you feel is the number of likes you get on the picture of your kid that you posted. What's giving you love is not a human, it's this. You, you following my train of thought there? And we become addicted to this, and while we're walking around like this, guess what we're not doing? Talking to people. Did you know people that are Users of social media are far more depressed than the average person who does not use social media. The more social media you use, the more likely you are to be clinically depressed. In an NPR study, it said two-thirds of people in this country report being lonely some of or all of the time. Two-thirds. Only 27% of people report never being lonely. Can you imagine that? Of Gen Zers, Gen Zers come after millennials. So Gen Zers are people of ages 18 to 22, somewhere in there. They scored a loneliness rate of 48.3 out of 80. Over half of them are chronically lonely, making them the loneliest generation. Millennials, eight people ages 23 to 37, in and these ages vary based on who you ask, they come in second with a loneliness score of 45.3. And the greatest generation, ages 72 or older, are the least lonely, with a score of 38.6. And still, that's not good, is it? But the greatest generation, you all are more likely to be where? Church, social clubs, with people, aren't you? The younger you get, the more tied in you are to technology, which makes you more lonely and depressed. Because the, the greatest generation, still in their mindset, in their psyche, they still trust the church. 
Now, I'm not saying whether you should or shouldn't trust the church. I'm just trying to show you the psychology behind it. You're likely to go to the church for fellowship and for up, being uplifted. And here's the thing. The church and institutions have given people reason not to trust it. Enron. You see why people don't trust institutions? Remember Enron? All the insider trading and the, the, the nonsense that went on there and the investment. Bernie Madoff is another one. You remember Bernie Madoff? I was mad at that one because I'm a New York Mets fan and the, the Mets uh, ownership got in big trouble with Bernie Madoff and took a whole bunch of money and they couldn't bring in any good players for a while. More than half of Gen Zers identify with 10, more than half identify with 10 of the 11 feelings associated with loneliness. Can you imagine that? Sort of like when you go to the doctor and they ask you, you know, just some random questions about your mental state. I'll start saying, how many days out of the month do you feel sad or lonely? Well, apparently there's a checklist that, that's asked about loneliness, and there's 11 questions. And over half of people, 18 to 22, are saying that 10 out of the 11 part, uh, measures of loneliness they feel. Members of the greatest generation are the least likely to report having feelings of loneliness, with only 25% report feeling left out or isolated from others. More than ever before in this world, people are alone, overstressed, overworked, and overstimulated. But you know something? People began to distrust the church when the church started to leave its mission. What do I mean by that? Let's dive into the Word here. We don't have as much today. Go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 1 John 1, 1. What has Christianity always been about? 1 John 1, 1. I'm in not the Gospel of John, but back there toward the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, I want you to see the theme that keeps coming up over and over and over again in this passage. 1 John 1, 1, when you've got it, say amen. That which we have heard from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So what John is saying here is that there is a truth about life and happiness and goodness. There is a truth about, there is an absolute truth and does it just say that they heard it from someone? They saw it? What else? They touched it? They saw it, they touched it, they heard it. What's he talking about? Jesus, that's exactly right. Jesus, it says it was made manifest to us. It came alive to us. The truth came alive to us. They didn't just hear it from someone. It was lived out, and they had fellowship with it. You following me here? So they had relationship, personal, one-on-one -on -one relationship with the truth-made life, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. What is the foundation of Christian faith? It's Jesus but how is it related to others, according to John? We have seen it. We have heard it. We have touched it. Presence. We lived with the truth. We had a relationship with the truth. His name was Jesus. We walked with him, we talked with him, we heard him, we saw him, he loved us. 
he was with us. The foundation of Christianity, in our minds, we always say it's truth. And that, yeah, but how is that, what is the foundation for the church, for Christianity? It's relationship. It's presence. It's being with one another. It's experiencing the truth through relationships. Are you with me? Now check this out. He, he continues this chain of presence. He says, verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we do what? We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Do you see how that works? They had fellowship with the truth. They experienced it. It changed their lives, not just through what they learned in their head, but through relationships, through presence. And because they had experienced the presence, they take that presence and be present in the life of someone else. Are you with me? So that we all may have fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be what? Complete. Joy is made complete through relationship that teaches us the truth of life through presence. The foundation of the Christian church was never first proclamation. You see what happened in, in, with the church? As society started to distrust us, we just said, listen to me. Listen to what I tell you. They started not to trust us. And we said, let me preach to you. And the Lord said, it was never just about preaching. It's always been about presence. The ministry of presence, being with each other. It's about community. We, when we are no longer present with each other, the truth is very hard to see. When we are not present in the lives of people who need Jesus, we are just expecting them, one, to listen to what we have to say, and two, to trust what we have to say. But if we're never with people, we never practice the ministry of presence, they're probably never even going to hear what you have to say. And what do we do as a church? We just, we just stand here and we put on our programs and we, we do the things that we do and we preach evangelistic series and we preach truth and then nobody comes and we go, oh, what's going on in our community? We've ceased to be present. It's always been about the ministry of presence being with people. And let me ask you this then, if the foundation of Christianity is the ministry of presence, is it the unique and special vehicle through which we can reach this society today? Remember what the, one of the major problems in our society today is? Loneliness. People are more lonely now than ever before. One of the foundations of Christianity is presence. The truth made manifest through relationships. When we are no longer present with people, the truth is very hard to see. Christianity is about God with us. Amen? And us with God. And us with us. And us with them. It's always about presence, the ministry of presence. As the world, listen to me very carefully, we're drawing to a close. As the world was rejecting truth, what did the church do? As the church saw society becoming more and more sinful and less and less spiritually interested, what did the church do? 
we shut ourselves off so that we wouldn't be influenced. We isolated ourselves. How did we ever expect society to experience the truth if we were not present with them? Because the ministry of presence in Christianity is as or more important than proclamation. As society in our eyes became more sinful, we became more proclamation heavy. Because it was feeding us, but it wasn't reaching them. They couldn't hear it because they weren't with us. And even if they did, they wouldn't trust us. And we earned that distrust. That was us. We earned it through the way people were treated and the way institutions handled things. And we earned that distrust. When the world was rejecting truth, we shut our doors. When the world needed us to be more open, we became more closed off. When people needed our presence, we gave them proclamation. And then we wondered why they weren't coming. In closing, I want to tell you this story. There, when I was in Minneapolis pastoring, there was a young girl with special needs. Her name was Fiona. And uh, she was a sweet girl. She was bound to a wheelchair. And her parents loved her. Her mother just loved on her constantly. Beautiful family. And uh, one day I got a call. And the call was that Fiona had some very bad pneumonia. And with her condition having pneumonia was extremely dangerous. And so they took her directly to ICU and they put her on a ventilator. And the word was from, the, from friends of the family that uh, she probably was not going to make it. So I was called to go to the hospital. And, you know, I'm an Adventist pastor. So <clears throat> I'm supposed to have something to say here you know we're the people of the truth so I have to have the right words to say right I better have the right prayers to pray and the right words of wisdom to bring comfort because you know hey I'm a pastor but as I'm driving to that hospital more and more I'm thinking to myself what in the world can I possibly say to this family it's all gonna be okay have a positive attitude. Their daughter was laying in a hospital bed, dying. And here I'm supposed to have some fancy, flowery words that are going to make it all better. <laughs> Here's a little sidebar. You know, Charles Darwin, one of the reasons why he became an atheist was his daughter died at a very young age, and the pastor came to him, the family pastor came to him. And do you know what he said to Charles Darwin? daughter died and he said the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away you wonder why people distrust the institution because we always think we got to have something to say in this case there's nothing I could say and I went to that hospital room and I had never seen a child on a ventilator before and there she was laying in the bed and the machine was making her chest rise and fall. The family was standing around her. They're crying. Dad was exhausted in the, in the corner of the room. And I was stunned. I, 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 I couldn't say anything. So I just sat down there. I sat down there in, in the quiet and just kind of took everything in. And yeah, we eventually said some prayers. And yeah, we uh, sang some songs around her bed. And we prayed for her healing. But you know what? Fiona didn't recover. She died. But during her weeks in the hospital, I was there. And church members were there. And elders were there. And after the time of grieving and the funeral was over, 
and he had time to clear his head. You see, Fiona's daddy had never given his heart to Jesus. And because we were there, and we loved on that family through their time of trial, he came to me one day and he said, I think it's time for me to give my life to Christ. And you know what he said to me? He said, Pastor, just thank you for being there. Yeah, I prayed prayers, and yeah, I, I, I tried to give encouragement, and I tried to read scriptures, and, but they didn't remember any of that. They didn't remember any of that. You know what they remember, and you know what made the difference in his life? Presence. And that presence was truth. And it converted his heart. He was baptized, joined the church. Family's an active, an active part of the church. But you see, we have fallen into, as society needs more and more of our presence, we've pulled back and just simply tried to reach them through proclamation. But the power of Christianity was never proclamation. It's always been presence. And so over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some very practical ways we as a Port Charlotte Seventh-day Adventist Church can be present in our community, practice presence with each other, and practice presence with people that are our neighbors and friends and co-workers. It's a journey that we have to go on. But the power of the Christian faith in a lonely, lonely era, let's reclaim the ministry of presence and watch the truth rain down on this community and lives changed. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we've talked a lot about history and a lot of things have happened because humans are involved in history and it's messy. But the conclusion that we've come to is that people don't trust the institution. They don't trust the church. They don't trust the government. But they're lonely. Like never before, people are lonely and they're depressed and they're anxious. And Lord, we've seen from the Word today that the power of the Christian faith has always been the ministry of presence, being with people so that they may see the truth through us. And there are hearts and minds open to proclamation when we've been present with them. So Lord, today, we ask You to challenge us how we can be more present in people's lives. How we can be the truth for someone. How we can live out Your love by being there for people. By being with each other and by being with them. Thank You, Lord, for this gift and this power that You've promised. The ministry of presence. You were with Your disciples. And those disciples became apostles who spent time with, the, with people that needed You. And then those people became present in the lives of others and it just multiplied. May we see that in our own church. May we see the ministry of presence become the power that it always has been to reach a lonely, depressed society. Bless us to this end. Challenge us with practical ways in which we can practice this in our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.